One day they finally discovered the man. The rescuers noticed that he had constructed three different huts. And so they asked him about them. The man pointed and said the first hut was his house. And the second hut was his church. Then with a little bit of embarrassment, he pointed to the third hut and said, that was my former church. Though the story is pretend, it does highlight an unfortunate reality. Churches often lack unity. Unity, disunity, can happen with an individual church, within fighting, even church splits. And disunity also affects the global church. For example, I don't think denominations are inherently wrong, but the sheer number of denominations testifies to the fact that we don't take unity seriously enough. As of 2014, there are an estimated 45,000 different denominations worldwide and growing. So what makes this all the more alarming is that unity is vital. As we discussed last week in part one, unity matters very much. We talked about three different reasons for this. First, unity pleases God. In John 17, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of the church, that we would be one just as He is one with the Father. That's the prayer of Jesus. Moreover, God commands the church to be unified. It's not something that we can take or leave, optional. No, it is a commandment given to the church to be unified. So we also saw that unity stirs belief in God. Human history is a long story of excessive division. All kinds of things divide us, like race, social class, etc. So when Christians actually come along from different walks of life and can be united, it shows the reality of God who can overcome such deep divisions. Amen? And then third, unity increases the church's impact. You see, when we are unified, we help others to serve more effectively. As we pray, encourage, teach, love one another, it strengthens each person's specific impact to serve more effectively. So in other words, if you strengthen Joe, not only do you strengthen Joe to serve more effectively, but then you strengthen Joe, who then helps and impacts others, who then go serve more effectively, who then go serve and bless other people within the church and impact the community. Unity makes an exponential impact. So seeing the importance of unity, we should do whatever it takes to maintain it. Amen? We know unity is difficult. We need motivation for it. It doesn't just happen. Paul in Ephesians 4.3 tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The, the verb there, to be eager, is very strong, implying zeal, making ever, every effort. One writer says about the word there, it says, he says, quote, it is hardly possible to render the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. 
Friends, we should fight not to cause disunity, but we should fight for unity. And that's going to lead us to where we pick up today. Barriers to unity. I want to discuss three barriers that hinder church unity. Interpersonal conflict, doctrinal differences, and matters of Christian conscience. All right? So let's look first at the first barrier. The first barrier is interpersonal conflicts. In my experience, this is the biggest cause of division. We say and do things that hurt and alienate each other. And conflict can exist in a church on all levels. It can happen amongst the people of the church. It can happen amongst the, between the leaders and the people. It can happen amongst the leaders themselves. You say, well, why is this? Well, let's just stop and think biblically what's going on within the human being. When we become Christians, the power of sin is broken. Hallelujah. Amen? But the presence of sin still remains. Jesus identified what is in our hearts. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. What's still there? The power might be broken, but the presence of it's still there. He said in Mark 7, 21-22, For within, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a lot, isn't it? So with these things in our hearts, conflict will inevitably arise. This happened in biblical times. It happens to the present day. For example, the church at Philippi was a good church. And they were commended by Paul in various ways, but they struggled with unity. And toward the end of the letter, Paul points out two women who were apparently at odds with one another. He says in Philippians 4, 2-3, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, this is this third party, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So get this, these women are Christians. They have worked side by side with Paul. Yet they were at odds with one another so much so that Paul points them out by name. Interpersonal conflict always threatens the unity of the church. You say, well, what do we do? Well, you could easily do a whole other sermon on that. But let's just kind of go with where Paul does in Philippians, where Paul, how Paul deals with disunity. So let's see what he says about this. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Here's, here's Paul's supernatural inspired remedy for us to deal with interpersonal conflict and attaining unity. So Philippians chapter 2, page 980, if you use one of the Bibles in front of you. Pick up in verse 2, Philippians 2. Paul says to the whole church here, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So the way to unity, friends, is to think of others. And to cement his point, Paul points to the greatest, the supreme example of someone looking at the interest of others, and that's Christ. Keep reading with me, verses 5 and following. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ died for our salvation. He thought of others when he left aside the glories of heaven to become a man, right? And to die on the cross. He did that thinking of others. Likewise, we are to think of others. If we will do so, we will stay united. Think about it. It's kind of hard to be divided with someone whom you're preoccupied and thinking of them and putting their interests above yours, right? Amen? Kind of hard to be divided with somebody when you're doing that. And here's some, here's some practical ways of thinking of others that will lead to unity. Encourage others instead of tearing them down. Love others when they maybe are different than you. Maybe not so lovable. Be patient instead of quick to anger. Ask for forgiveness when we hurt others. Be selfless instead of selfish. Speak gently, knowing that everybody prefers that instead of a hard, harsh response. To preserve unity, we need to think of others. You say, well, okay, all right, I need to think of others, but what happens when it comes back to me and I am wronged in some way? Well, I'd say the same thing. Think of others. Think about that other person. Forgive them so you're no longer going to carry bitterness in how you interact with that person. And think of others for the sake of the church, the good of the whole church, that we would try to work things out together as a church rather than just simply getting upset and leaving the church without saying anything. And when that happens, people have hurts and questions and it damages the unity of the church rather than trying to think of others and work it out. So let me ask you, do you have any interpersonal conflicts in the church right now going on? If so, Scripture would call us to forgive. Love covers a multitude of sins. Or if there's something that you forgive but you still need to talk to with that person, then go do it. Go do it. Maybe you know of a situation where there's interpersonal conflict and you're kind of the third party and you know what's going on and it's not getting better. Friends, the Bible says that we should be an agent of reconciliation. We saw that in the Philippians passage. These two women were having trouble with one another. Paul says, look, you third party, you go. Be an agent of reconciliation. Be a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He doesn't say peacekeepers. He says peacemakers. 
Go make peace. So to have true unity, we must learn how to work through interpersonal conflict. Amen? Second barrier to unity is doctrinal differences. Now to begin, there are certain essential truths that define Christianity. You could call this the gospel, right? These are the basic redemptive truths of Christianity. Such beliefs would include that Scripture is the authoritative Word of God inspired that He has given for the church. We believe in a trinity, God, one person. God, three persons, one divine essence. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus, who died on the cross to atone for our sins. And then He rose three days later and ascended to be with the Father in glory. Salvation is a matter of God's grace. It's not human works. Jesus is going to return one day to judge all people. Some to spend eternity in heaven. Some to spend eternity in hell. Christianity is founded on these core beliefs. And you see even in Scripture itself sort of many faith statements, if you will, of foundational essential truths. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Ephesians 4, 4 4-6 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So friends, these are core examples of, of what Christianity is. These things must be defended or there is no Christianity, right? So you don't compromise on this stuff. And you see this with Paul, who was adamant about church unity... But he recognized essential beliefs could not be compromised. And you see this, for example, in the book of Galatians, where Paul was writing to a church that was suffering from this false teaching that salvation was a matter of grace and works rather than simply grace. And Paul doesn't come along and say, hey guys, let's just don't worry about that. It doesn't matter. No, this is what Paul says. He comes really strong out of the gates in his opening chapter there where he says... Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. So in other words, there can be no unity with that kind of teaching. Unity can never come at the expense of the gospel, right? I like what theologian Timothy George said. He said, unity and love must always must also be unity and truth. Else it is not unity at all. That said, there are certain secondary doctrines which Christians can differ and still enjoy unity. These beliefs don't define Christianity as much as explain it. For example... As I said, it's an essential belief that Jesus is going to return again in the future. And He's going to judge all of mankind. And He's going to set up His kingdom. Alright? Secondary beliefs explain the details of His return. Like the Antichrist and who that might be. A tribulation period. How long that might be. uh, The role of Israel and so on. These things that uh, may or may not happen and the details of it 
all with the return of Christ. On these secondary beliefs, sincere Christians differ, right? They differ. They always have and they always will. There are other secondary beliefs that Christians differ on, such as whether the, there are certain spiritual gifts that are still functional, whether the days of Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour days or figurative, the relationship between God's sovereign control of all things and human responsibility. And there are other things. And all of these doctrines are important. And I want you to hear me. We want to know what God's Word teaches. Just because there are differences doesn't mean that we never discuss them, right? Or we dismiss them. Because, oh, I don't want to have any controversy. No, that's not what we're saying. We don't want groupthink, do we? That doesn't honor God, and that is not true unity. True unity, friends, is studying the differences, knowing what you believe, and yet still be willing to accept Christians who differ from you. True unity is making the choice to put the essential truths over the secondary and not to divide. You ever heard this quote before? I love it. It's great. It comes from a 17th century German theologian. He said, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Which was an older word for love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. It's a great statement, isn't it? So to have true unity, we must learn to work through doctrinal differences. Third barrier here is matters of Christian conscience. By this I mean there are certain issues that Scripture does not directly address. This is different than doctrinal differences and that doctrinal differences are addressed by Scripture, but Christians differ on their interpretation. Matters of conscience are things that the Scripture does not address. And so therefore, we have to apply biblical principles and how to live out these various convictions. And so here's the rub. You might have a situation, and one Christian will apply one set of principles to that situation. Another Christian might apply another set of principles to that situation. Or they might take the same set of principles and apply them differently. And there are a lot of issues where Christians differ when it comes to their conscience. The early Christians struggle with them, and so do we. Let me give you an example. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So you see how the early church had their struggles too. First Corinthians chapter 8, while you're turning there, page 956, just a little background. Paul's writing to this Corinthian church, predominantly Gentile background. These Christians came out of pagan practices where they would practice idolatry, and as part of their idolatry, they would uh, have various sacrifices to their gods and so on, and sometimes they would uh, eat food as part of these sacrifices. And Paul deals with food that was then taken from these sacrifices and then sold out in the marketplaces. Okay, So that's just a little bit of background. And so there were Christians who had different consciences about that food that was sold in the marketplace. Okay, So let's read chapter 8. Just take a second here. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know 
yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for all, from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through a former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who, has, who have knowledge in eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak brother is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So that was a lot there, but let me just kind of unpack what Paul was saying. Idols do not exist. Only God exists. Therefore, you shouldn't go participate in a pagan ceremony and eat the food in some kind of idolatrous ceremony, okay? But the food offered to an idol that was then later taken out of that temple and put out in the marketplaces, and you probably didn't even know that it was used in an idol ceremony. Paul says, look, if you want to eat that meat, you're free to eat it because you know the idols don't even exist in the first place. But you might have a brother or sister in Christ who knows the, the source of that meat and it bothers their conscience and so they don't want to eat that meat. Do you see what he's talking about there? So notice how Paul is very gentle in regard to the matters of the conscience. People can differ. In fact, Paul goes out of his way to say, hey, look, don't, don't offend that person. If that person's going to be offended that they see you eating that meat or whatever, or you're trying to talk to them about it, he said, don't eat the meat. You know you can't, but don't offend your brother over a matter of the conscience. It's more important that you stay unified than trying to convince that person, oh, that matter about that meat, we know that idols don't exist, go ahead and eat it. He says, more important that you stay unified. And whatever you do should be for the glory of God. In chapter 10, we won't go there, but famous verse that Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, do you know that that context is actually speaking about the conscience? So do everything for the glory of God in regard to your conscience, in regard to unity. So let me throw out a couple of examples here to work us, help us work through with the modern day thing. One's a perennial debate among Christians. Halloween, coming up in a couple months. But less than that, I guess. Some parents are convinced that you should not celebrate Halloween because of its connection 
with darkness and death. Some parents avoid those elements and focus on the positive, such as getting dressed up in costumes and candy. Churches sometimes will have alternatives, right? Trunk or treat or a harvest party for those kind of families. Other parents use the opportunity to evangelize, right? Instead of going out to people's houses, people are coming to you. I had a seminary professor, he, he took that opportunity to share the gospel with the people that came to his house. Who's right? Who's right? Whoever is following their conscience is right. Whoever is doing it for the glory of God is right. You say, well, then should we have even these discussions about Christians? Should we just never bring it up? I think it all depends. Somebody asks you your conviction, sure, share it with them. That's fine. Or if you have a line of communication and you can talk freely about these things, absolutely. Like I said, we want to be able to talk and share these things. However, if you've already discussed it with your friend and you know that you differ, I would say don't keep trying to convince them that they're wrong and you're right. And just driving that wedge in. Moreover, be sensitive to their conviction. For example, if someone is, is really against Halloween, I wouldn't encourage you to go up to them the day after and go on and on about how your kids had such a great time at Halloween. Knowing how that will rub them. We should be willing to limit our own freedom out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? One more, just for fun. The upcoming presidential election. <laughs> Why not, right? Christians are divided. Whether we should vote for Donald Trump or not. Some are convinced that he is an unacceptable option because of his character and or lack of competence. So they urge people to abstain from voting or to vote for another person. Others say that though Trump may not be the ideal candidate, he offers the best chance of supporting important social issues such as the sanctity of life, religious liberty, and so on. Godly people are on both sides of this issue. Who is right? Whoever is following their conscience is right. Whoever is voting for the glory of God is right. We're not dealing with an essential Christian belief or even a secondary belief. Rather, we're dealing with something not addressed in Scripture, so we must apply principles. And as they said, Christians will apply different principles or the same principles they will apply differently. Unfortunately, I've been reading some comments on the Internet from leaders. They're kind of disappointing. I think that's wrong. This is not an issue for Christians to divide. It is fine to feel strongly about it. I'm not saying that. Be passionate. That's fine. But we have to choose Christ first and to maintain unity. To have true unity, we must learn to work through matters of Christian conscience. So friends, kind of wrapping all this up, what unites us are the essentials of the faith, the gospel. 
We have to focus on these truths. And I really believe it comes down to a choice. You can either focus on the gospel or other things. And it's an interesting dynamic. As you focus on one, the other diminishes in importance. In other words, if you focus on the gospel and you really put your heart and mind into the gospel, these other things that we talked about, the interpersonal conflict, the secondary doctrines, the matters of Christian conscience, it's amazing how they start shrinking in importance. It's not that they don't matter. They do matter. It's just that you're making the choice to minimize them. Likewise, if you focus on these other things, the interpersonal conflicts, the secondary doctrines, and these matters of Christian conscience, if that gets really big in your life, what will happen to the gospel? It will shrink. And I tell you what will happen. Disunity will follow. Mark it down. We must focus on the gospel. We must focus on the gospel. And when disagreements arise, you know what? It can actually be an opportunity to glorify God. You see, friends, the world doesn't know how to disagree. Look at our country. We can't even have a civil conversation anymore in this country about a difference. We are at each other's throats. We have no way of communicating. It's just getting worse and worse. Because we just want to boycott this and do that and never want to listen to this and shut this person off. And the way the, it's just it's terrible. The world needs the church to model how to be able to differ in a godly way. And that's my prayer for us. Is Romans 15, 5 and 6. It says... May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me, in close, let me just ask you a question. Talking about unity, essential is your heart and the gospel. Have you ever embraced these beliefs of the faith? Not just, okay, I think they might be real, but embrace them so that they are good news for you personally. Going back again to Corinthians, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Gospel that Jesus was God in human flesh and He lived this perfect sinless life, and He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again to show that there is victory over death and sin, and that your sins can be forgiven. You sitting there today, all of your sins can be forgiven, past, present, and future, if you will trust in Christ and not depend upon your own good works. It is all by grace. That is at the heart of the Gospel. Has that become real in your life? transformed you so that you are a new creature in Christ. Because once that happens, then you start seeing unity all differently, don't you? And then finally, I'd just like to say we would love for you personally to help increase our church unity by becoming a, a church member. Meaning, you're saying, you know what, I'm committing to this church as my church family. 
I want to serve here. I want to use my spiritual gifts to build this body up, to build them up so we can make maximum impact here in our community and support our mission to make disciples for the glory of God. And likewise, we want to come alongside you and help you to grow in your relationship with Christ. If that's something that interests you, I'd love to speak with you about it sometime or be on the lookout for a membership class that we'll have in the future as we seek to grow together as a church with true unity. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, my prayer is just what Paul said again. So wonderful. Romans 15, 5 and 6. And I just pray that for our church here today. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to live that out. Forgive us for the ways that we have not, whether it's the interpersonal conflict, whether it's making too much of secondary doctrines, or matters of Christian conscience that we need to see properly as secondary to the gospel. Lord, help us to maintain the unity, to fight for it as your word calls us to do, to be eager to maintain it. We know that there is spiritual warfare always seeking to divide. Help us to be peacemakers, we pray, so that we can walk in your blessing. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.